Welcome to the Missions Podcast, where we answer your hard questions about theology, missions, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm your host, Alex Kochman. I'm the Director of Long-Term Missionary Mobilization here at ABWE International, and I'm joined in the studio, as usual, by my lovely co-host, Scott W. Dunford, Vice President of Communications and Mobilization here at ABWE. How are you doing, Scott? Good. I'm glad someone finally noticed. Appreciate that. (laughs) And Scott, who else is here with us today? Yeah, it's exciting to have our first guest, and uh, I'm happy to introduce to you Jonathan Arnold. He's the Assistant Professor of Theology at Church History at Boyce College and a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, He is a friend of mine. We've known each other since we pastored in Michigan together. Uh, He pastored there for three years. Uh, He's engaged in student ministries in the U.S. and England. Um, He was the Vice President of Student Services and a Professor of Theological Studies at Northland International University in Dunbar, Wisconsin. Uh, he's an author. He's written The Reformed Theology of Benjamin Keach, along with numerous articles, book chapters, book reviews, blah, 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 on and on. The guy's smart. Um, he also uh, is a graduate of, of Oxford University, um, and he's currently the director of the Augustan Honors Collegium at Boyce College and the editor of the Augustan Collegiate Review. And uh, it's really great to have him as our guest today. He's also the father of four amazing children, uh, Nathaniel, Benjamin, Luke, and Sadie. And uh, his probably his best quality is his wife, Lindsay, who's a great friend as well. So it's great to have him here. He's an expert on church history, and uh, we have a great topic to discuss with him today. Well, Jonathan, thanks for joining us here today. Thanks for having me, guys. Now, I have to ask Benjamin, your son, is he named for Benjamin Keach? He is not. My wife would have shot me if I had even asked for that. So truth be told, uh, my wife and I were expecting right now, uh, before we knew the gender, it's a girl. But before we knew the gender, um, we were thinking boy names, and uh, Piper and Calvin and Chandler were all on the table, and I was accused of just copying, you know, the names of various pastors, idols, things like that. I'm a little disappointed that Scott or Dunford wasn't one of your options. Just Dunford? Dunford Kochman. I think that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for a girl, too. No, let's not go there. You know, if we were going to have another one, that would be my choice. Dunford. Dunford. I appreciate no that. What. Thank you. That's so beautiful. Name. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us this afternoon, Jonathan. And uh, what we wanted to dive into today while we had you here uh, to pick your brain is a question that a lot of people are asking right now with the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation coming up. Uh, This Reformation Day at the end of the month, 2017, we celebrate when Martin Luther uh, nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the chapel in Germany. Although uh, I heard something this week that said actually it might have been a janitor that glued it to the door, which is a little bit less cool. But uh, specifically what we wanted to get into today is did the reformers actually believe in the Great Commission or is missions sort of a new thing that kind of comes out of what we would say now in historical hindsight is the modern missions movement? Did the reformers believe in the Great Commission? Yeah, it's such a great question. It's one of those that uh, perennially comes up for the academy. Uh, I laugh sometimes. I think we don't we aren't creative enough to come up with our own questions, but they are worth going back around to. Uh, and and that one is is one that typically I think the vast majority of people will will read the history of interpretation there roughly the same and that is that the the Great Commission through uh, the 16th century into the 17th century even was 
uh, almost universally applied in the same way within the church, and that is that it, it applied only to the apostles. Uh, and they, they read it that way, and that was the way they saw that particular charge. Uh, but that's a, a really short answer that doesn't actually get to the full picture uh, that we're, we're looking at today. And, and that is uh, just because the particular text, you know, the, the five times that those that, that text shows up in the New Testament, uh, just because that that applies in their heads anyway, only to the apostles, to those that actually heard the words being given, doesn't mean that the church didn't still have a, a mission, didn't still have a project to be working on. And uh, certainly the reformers, though they might not have applied the Great Commission to their work, uh, certainly saw uh, the the work of, of the church uh, being uh, active in their life and and being uh, a call placed on contemporary church uh, that they had a job to do and that was to spread the gospel uh, to the the known ends of the world but that goes all the way back that's not just the reformers they're coming along in a long line of church history that says that the church is supposed to be bringing the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth uh, the real question I think for us to start with is is what did that look like what was the ends of the earth for them and I think that's where uh, the the Real rubber meets the road, if you'll pardon the uh, mixing of analogies across that. So the the world was somewhat smaller then, so to speak, and flat, maybe. <laughs> Probably <Just> not. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, that's a movement right now. I'm not going to comment on that. Probably not flat for them at that point, but yeah, certainly smaller, much much smaller. And the idea that uh, that they could actually get the 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 gospel to the ends of the earth, even without potentially getting on a boat, was very real in in many of their minds, uh, and certainly would have been conceivable that the whole world was just the Roman Empire or whatever vestiges of the Roman Empire remained. So when we as as uh, 21st century Christians. Um, particularly Baptists or Protestant Christians, um, think of the Great Commission or think of missions. For, for a lot of us, it starts at like William Carey or maybe the Moravians. Um, but that, that would be a mistake, isn't it? Uh, what, what was going on in the area of missions even before the Reformation? Yeah, I mean, I think you've got to go all the way back. I mean, when I, I teach a course actually on the history of missions or have in the past. And, and uh, we st- I start with the very beginning of looking at, at Paul uh, and, uh, you know, the early church from Pentecost moving forward and seeing that as, as the beginning of missions, obviously. But then mm-hmm. the, the myth is that there was this you know, time period where uh, the apostles are gone and then you have a thousand years or 1500 years and this missiological project is lost. Uh, I don't think that's the case at all. I think that's a, a, a poor reading of, of history. Uh, certainly uh, across the Roman Empire from the first, from the, the, the anti-Nicene fathers, so those that came before the Council of Nicaea, uh, so the, the first couple of centuries, certainly they had the idea that the gospel needed to be spread and needed to be spread uh, in their minds early on apart from government support. And then after Christianity becomes a, a legalized and then um, government-sponsored project, it, it happens through the government or at least alongside the government. Uh, and then once the government falls, especially in the West when the Roman Empire falls in the 5th century, then the the church reclaims that mission. Uh, we're talking here about Gregory the Great and the, the great mission to the British Isles, hmm. which had been 
mm-hmm. Christianized at one point, but he saw as being, in a in, in a modern term, post-Christian. Uh, they needed to be re-evangelized, so he sends uh, Augustine of Canterbury and uh, sends him and his group of monks up there to to re-evangelize. So there's clearly this missiological focus of bringing the gospel to a people who need it. Well, it's, it, it's interesting, and I realize you can learn a lot from a people. Uh, by their myths as much as the true history. But um, even just the stories that are told, uh, even though, even if the, some of them were apocryphal about the apostles and how they, um, how, how all of them but John died martyrs' deaths, and many of those stories end up with the apostle, whether it's like Thomas on the field of India with spears in his side or um, other, there's stories of other apostles that, that traveled, you know, to Persia, to, to Spain. And even though, I mean, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear your perspective as a historian, whether those have any validity to them. But if nothing else, at least says how the early church understood their mission. Would, would you? What would you say to that? Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right, and and unfortunately, uh, a good number of those traditional stories are, are somewhat lost to us as far as being able to, to uh, actually ascertain is this factual. Um, we do have enough evidence to support several of them, and certainly the the tradition holds that basically, as you said, every disciple, and, and actually not basically is not the right word there. Every disciple uh, would have gone off to the ends of the known world and uh, generally suffered martyrdom with with John being the possible exception depending on if you consider that martyrdom or not so yeah I, I, I think that the um, the the vast majority of uh, either evidence that we have to support it or at least good uh, well attested traditions will t- will tell you that that is uh, how the the disciples uh, saw their project that their project was mm. to the end of their life and it was uh, supposed to be a courageous thing standing up in faith in the face of persecution uh, and certainly the early church passed on those stories in a way that was intended um, to respect them and honor them, uh, I hesitate to use the word venerate. I think it's a, it's a good word in some fashion, but not in a um, an, an idolatrous way, but just in a – this is the, the example that we're supposed to be given. They have gone and joined the great cloud of witnesses that has been our tradition. One of the most amazing things that I think I've ever seen is when we were living in, um, in China, we were, we were in the city of Xi'an, which is the former capital of the Chinese empire, um, and um, – Around 640 AD, um, there's evidence that uh, that Christians had come all the way, actually being sent from uh, what is now Iraq, and that were sent to uh, to China as missionaries. They were called Nestorians, although um, the evidence that I read is unsure whether they were actually Nestorian or or not. Um, but they actually the em- the uh, the emperor of the Tang Dynasty um, built a pagoda in one of the holiest sites in all of China. Um, and the evidence is that it was a Christian, a Christian um, uh, um, pagoda that was built to house the Christian scriptures. And you think even by 640 A.D., um, that was you know right around the time Muhammad was born. Uh, the world is still you know very uh, big place, so to speak. And yet the Christians were seeing their vi- their mission as taking the gospel to the end of the world. 
Uh, yeah, Jonathan, you mentioned that a little bit before, when we were talking before the show, just even in Colossians, you have Paul says, you know, that the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. And of course, we look at that and we realize that doesn't mean that every nation in the entire planet had access to the gospel, but it means, you know, the known earth, the Roman Empire. So talk to us a little bit about how did they see the world? And especially after that apostolic era kind of dwindled off. And then we kind of have, especially for most of us as Protestants, we kind of have this thinking that nothing significant happened again until Martin Luther had his theses glued onto the door by that janitor, or if he actually nailed them himself, right? Um, so what happened in that time in between, and how did they see the world? Yeah, there's a there's a whole other uh, episode for you to cover if you want to talk about the, the reception of the idea of Luther nailing his theses on the door. That's a very interesting history in and of itself, but perhaps <laughs> for another time. Um, I'd love to come back to that, but that's probably on a Reformation podcast, not a missions podcast. <laughs> yeah, there, there's the nerd in me coming out again, uh, but uh, it, it doesn't go away for very long. Um, no, the, the idea of the world for them, uh, for, for most of the Roman Empire, would have been uh, exactly that, that the Roman Empire itself is the extent of, of the world. Now, they knew, obviously, of things beyond. Uh, you know, they, they knew, especially by the time you get to the 5th century, 4th century, uh, they knew of the the so-called barbarian tribes, these um, potentially pagan tribes that are attacking and, and ultimately will sack Rome and uh, they'll watch as, as the great Roman legion is is undone. Uh, so th- there's under, an understanding that there is another people group there and there's a fear of, of these others. Uh, but even so, those are right on the boundary. They're, they're, they're proof that the border of the Roman Empire is actually the, the ends of the world. Because when you, once you leave the Roman Empire, you get to this kind of, at least in their minds, this barbarian people group, um, and that would have been the case both in the West, uh, where you have the the Gaulish people, or uh, sometimes you, you'll get words thrown around like Celtic and Gaelic and Gaulish, and and those are somewhat interchangeable, at least at a um, a, a lay level, uh, and they often get just um, interchanged even at the at the highest academic levels, unfortunately. Uh, but then even over in the East. I mean, you've got the Huns and and other tribal groups like that that would have been proof again to them. There is something else out there, but it's not really our world. Mm. Uh, And that would have been a much smaller – I mean – they, they know of trade routes, right? They know of ancient empires and those kinds of things, but they're not thinking in those terms. So the idea of the gospel being able to go to the ends of the earth is, is I think, and, and if we're trying to read it as the original audience would have been, I think the, the best idea they have in mind is going to the ends of the Roman roads, uh, where the the, the legion can go, where the tradesmen can go, uh, and and being able to bring the gospel, which would have still been across several different languages, but using one single, you know, lingua franca that they actually could have could have communicated together and and uh, something of of a similar culture, although clearly would have included multiple cultures that had been, you know, enveloped by the empire. Um, but, but so it's not that they thought that the world was just around the corner. I mean, they understood it was bigger than that. Uh, but it wasn't a, let's go seek out the tribal groups in say Papua New Guinea. Uh, there was no, no concept. I don't think of that, at least not in the average everyday person's life. Well, that's interesting that, um, you know, you kind of mentioned how they viewed it through the lens of the Roman empire, because I kind of think, 
you know, if you think about what God has done providentially in history, too, and everything that happened in the time between the writing of the New Testament and the, the conclusion of the Old and the intertestamental period, um, you have, you know, all of these empires, including the Roman Empire, you know, that are um, enveloping the known world at that time. And, you know, how much should we even credit the fact that God brought that about in history to give these early Jewish Christians and the early Gentile Christians, but especially the Jewish Christians, this understanding of uh, the idea of reaching these different groups within, you know, an empire, within kind of this um, larger government, this group. Maybe that concept wouldn't have even existed except for the things that kind of were brought about historically. Oh, no, I think you're right on. I think uh, Paul's little phrase that in the fullness of time, Jesus came, I think that is uh, every time I come back around to that, I'm, I'm constantly re-amazed at all of the little providential details that have to go into place wow. for the gospel to be able to go out from this little bitty community that had been uh, completely oppressed or suppressed by the Roman Empire, basically off of their radar for the most part. Uh, and yet from that comes this gospel message that's literally going to turn the world upside down. Um, and for that to happen is, yeah, nothing short of a miracle. As you're talking about the amazingness of God's providence in the fullness of time, Christ coming into the world, and the world is, as the early church saw it, um, now we fast forward 1,500 years to the time of the Reformation. Um, what was unique about that time? How, how had the world changed by the time of Martin Luther, John Calvin, Erwig Zwingli, John Knox? We could go on and on with cool names. Uh, what, what, how had the world changed in the way they viewed it? And why was there a similar type of thing happening that the world was ready in a new way um, for the Reformation. Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, the world had, had not changed uh, nearly as much as you might think in a thousand years. Uh, in, in our world, we think of you know, five years and everything is outdated and everything needs to be changed. I mean, if you've got a computer that's five years old, you're, you're done in, um, in, in that day and age, you know, a thousand years is, is not nearly as long, uh, as we would, as we might think. And so I, I think there's some aspect to that, that the world is not all that different than it had been. And so the concept, while the Roman Empire had uh, fallen apart and had been replaced by the Holy Roman Empire, and even that was uh, a, a different sort of thing, the the extent of the world was still somewhat small. Uh, and yet, in, in some ways, uh, they were at least in the midst of some massive changes. You think of the beginning of the, the, the printing press, at least the printing press with movable type, which makes uh, printing so much easier and able to get messages out very quickly. Uh, that had as much to do with the change in the world uh, and the way they saw the world as uh, an, an understanding or a um, discovery of the new world that happens, you know, just before the beginning of at least where we date the Reformation, 1517. You think about Columbus in 1492 um, and that idea of the age of discovery coming out of the Iberian Peninsula, Portugal, and uh, the, the empires beginning to happen. So there is now uh, something beyond the water that they're going to. Well, I can imagine, you know, being a young boy growing up in Europe and hearing the news of, of uh, Christopher Columbus would it be something similar to a young boy growing up in the 60s or 70s and watching a man walk on the moon? I mean, that had to just be mind-blowing 
at that time. Yeah, no, I think I think so. With the the difference being, and even perhaps even more mind blowing, because when they got there, there was somebody also there. I mean, you know, hmm. if, we, if we landed <laughs> on the moon and, and had met people there, I think it would have been the same sort of thing. So, I mean, I think that is, in one sense, the world is is very similar. In another sense, there is this vast new opening that is possible, and there's a beginning to think, or they're just beginning to think, what does this mean for the church. What does this mean for the gospel commission? Uh, for the for this idea of the church needing to go out, and and certainly um, the the church steps in very quickly, depending on what you mean by the church. But um, you know, the, the Catholic Church that is still unified in the West at that point steps in and makes that a part of the whole process. And so you have uh, from the very beginning churchmen going out on these boats, going out with the. Conquistadors going out with the the discoverers uh, and and taking what they saw as the church's mission with them. And you also have uh, what comes to mind for me is the Black Death and the fact that you had people, you know, again thinking about life and death issues, and that was something that um, was still in people's memory. It seems like things were ready. Um, you know, when, when Martin Luther did, you know, release the 95 Theses, you know, there, there were uh, other factors that were sort of lining up. But that sort of gets to another question that I wanted to address with you, Jonathan, which is that, um, you know, we were talking even a little bit about the movie Silence that came out and talking about Jesuit missionaries. And we now have that um, in the movie theater. Most of us don't have any idea of anything that might have happened in terms of mission, either the Roman Catholic Church um, or we might dismiss it because we would say, well, you know, they, they didn't understand the gospel and, and sort of just dismissing everything that happened. So what were some of those missionary efforts like? Yeah, so I mean, we've already talked a little bit about uh, Gregory the Great, and just kind of mentioned him, but him sending out uh, these uh, missionaries. I think there's no other way to talk about them. Uh, Augustine of, of Canterbury going off to the British Isles in the seventh century. Uh, you've got people like Patrick, uh, famous patron saint of, of Ireland, uh, on a on a missiological journey, uh, and and his story is is well known. And there there are plenty of those types of stories all the way through the Middle Ages, and certainly uh, the vast majority of those uh, missiological projects were done through the monastery system of one in one sense or another, and, and often done uh, as, as part of uh, official church projects, and in many cases really were the reason why the Western civilization uh, was uh, protected and, and saved. Throughout the Middle Ages, uh, the library system that is uh, part of that monastic network, that sort of thousand-year period where uh, we, we sort of were isolated uh, to some extent uh, from, where, from the rest of the, the known world. Um, but then when, when the Reformation time period hits, not even just the Reformation itself, but when the Renaissance hits and uh, the, the culture starts to think about not only their past, but also what else is out there beyond the ocean, and uh, they start to recognize that there's a new world, those kinds of things, uh, everybody starts to think through what does that mean for our immediate culture, and that includes the, the Catholic Church, and there I'm just using that term to mean you know, the, the unified church, um, and then even immediately following. So you mentioned uh, the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus that would have started in the, the 1530s, 
Um, so after the, the beginning of the Reformation, after Luther's 95 Theses, after his Heidelberg Disputation, uh, the, this group of people within the Catholic Church see it as their job to take, in their words, to take the gospel out to the rest of the world. And so there is this push, even from within the Catholic Church, um, and I say that as if as if it should be surprising. It shouldn't be. Um, the church has always had this this missionary focus, and there's always been, God has always protected within his, uh, within the, the body that claims the name of the church, God has always had his remnant that has held on to the, the true gospel and, and seen it as a uh, desire or as their job to get that out there to the rest of the world. And, and I think this is, those projects, and, and there's various ways to uh, analyze them and to critique them and certainly wouldn't fall in line with, all, with them completely theologically, uh, but there's, there's definitely a desire there to get the, the gospel message out to the world, and I think there's a, a lot to be learned from, from those guys. So when, when, when uh, Calvin and Luther and guys in that, as they were, as they were in the Catholic Church, um, would they have had a concept then of missions? It seems like they would have already. Yeah, they're they're not using. I don't think, at least in my reading of it, they're not using terms that that we'll use in the modern missions movement, right? That we'll we'll develop our own lexicon for that. Starting, usually we date that to William Carey. I would date it a little bit earlier, but that era, um, and and they're certainly not speaking that same language. That's a we're we are. Honestly, we're children of the Enlightenment, and, and we need to own that and, and be okay with that. Um, so they're not using the same language, but they are speaking of the gospel being there for all peoples. Uh, you see multiples of them even talking about from the uh, 15th, 16th, and 17th century uh, – even talking about the gospel being necessary for the Jew and the Turk. Mm. And in their mind, that's the two most ex, uh, extreme versions of people who have not received the gospel. The Jew who has turned his back in, in their eyes on uh, what God had offered them and now needs to be re-brought into uh, to that kingdom. Um, and the Turk, yeah. the, the, the Muslim. And those that were attacking, remember that that Western Europe almost falls to uh, the 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 Moors um, before Charles Martel holds them back in the eighth century, and so um, the 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 attack of the Turk was very real in their eyes. So some of the fears and, that we would see in today's society toward Islam, they were dealing with then. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah, so for them to say, for these reformers and, and first, second, and third generation reformers to say, look, the gospel is for those people. I mean, that's, that's saying that grace is for your enemy. And I, I think we can't overlook that uh, in their writings, in their teachings, in their preaching. It is constant throughout um, Calvin especially, and then into the the English Reformation all over the place, you'll see uh, these great preachers talking about the gospel being for their enemy. Uh, and, and unfortunately, and, and we can talk about this too, there, there's also uh, some very uh, unfortunate and wrong-headed and sinful responses that are there as well. Luther's yeah. well known for his anti-Semitism. But uh, as a whole, they are focused on, look, the gospel is God's good news. It is the only way for salvation, Christ alone, by grace alone, faith alone, and that has to get out to the people. So is it fair, there's a criticism that's out there and it's been out there for quite a while, that um, the reformers 
they they had lost the missionary zeal that that the Catholic Church had before. I mean, I think that was an early critique of the Catholic Church of the Re- Reformation is that they didn't they weren't a true church. They had no missionary zeal. Um, is it accurate that 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 the, the the children of the Reformation focused back into Europe? And if so, why would that be? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think the the critique comes from a misunderstanding of the missiological project, uh, and I think the the ref, reformers, uh, the way I read the reformers, they understood their missiological project to be uh, to plant, or in their case, replant the true church in. Uh, the world. And their world started with what we know of as Western Europe. It didn't end there by any means, but it had to start there. And so Luther is focused on the Germanic lands. Uh, Calvin is focused on Geneva first, Strasbourg certainly for a couple of years while he's there, and and France most importantly, but he also sends people to Brazil. Uh, And and there is certainly an understanding of, look, this has got to go beyond that. But their hope is that the true church would be replanted in uh, Western Europe. Um, There's a great painting uh, from, I I believe it's from uh, 1569. It's by Lucas Cronog the Younger, and he he paints um, on one side, it's called the the Lord of the Vineyard, and he has uh, Roman Catholics on one side. By this time, the Reformation is all in full swing. So he's got Roman Catholics on one side in a garden that's dying, and they're working their uh, hearts out, but it's just dying. The, the plants are, are withered. And on the other is clearly Martin Luther and some of the Reformers working in a garden that is starting, just starting, but starting to bloom and uh, really grow amongst them. And I think that's what they saw. They saw themselves as uh, being the, the workers in the harvest, and they are in the process of, of planting and really germinating that garden with the goal long term that that's going to go well beyond their boundaries that they know of. But it's going to take some time, and they know that the first thing they have to do is go to their Jerusalem. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the, this whole conversation for me to make it practical, especially for those who are involved in missions, to me just sort of says that we have to have some humility about realizing that uh, none of this is completely new. God has always had his people and he's always had his ways of getting his people out, whether they were all about that or whether they understood it or not. And, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of 2,000 years worth of giants who maybe not everyone had it all figured out, but neither did we. And so as we approach the task of mission, we have to be uh, humble, we have to respect our roots, and we have to really just praise God for what he's been doing in history, and we get to reap the benefits of that. Uh, But I'd like to get more into the practical implications of all of this in our next episode. And Jonathan, you're going to stay on board here, and in our next episode, we want to talk a little bit more about why it matters now moving forward uh, into the next 500 years and some of the ways that what did happen through the reformers um, still impact us now. But were there any closing comments that you want to have on um, mission leading up to the Reformation and, um, you know, kind of that idea that they didn't believe in the Great Commission? Yeah, I think the one the one thing that always comes around to me when I'm, when I'm working back through this with students or, or on my own is that I, I don't think that there was any one particular individual in the reform in the reformation um, or even a group of individuals who could have sat back and planned it out the way that it happened 
they they were a product of a multitude of uh, providential experiences, uh, and they were interested in bringing the gospel to everybody that came into their midst, uh, everybody that they could come into contact with, whether that meant that they were going out or whether that meant they were bringing people in. And and often it was the latter because of the, the situations. So they were cities of refuge, and they could train people and send them out, uh, something like our modern-day seminaries uh, where you bring people in and then send them back out to where they're from, at least that being the idea. Um, and and I think if you sat them down in 1517 and said, hey, what do you want the next 50, 100 years to look like? None of them would have come up with what ended up happening. And yet in God's providence, he used a multitude of strange events and ended up bringing the gospel not only across uh, the Western Europe, uh, but a, a rejuvenation of the gospel across the world. Uh, and I, I just don't think that we could have planned it at all. And thank God uh, he didn't wait for us to plan it. Yeah, absolutely. Just like uh, Martin Luther is said to have said, you know, that he just preached and taught the word of God and God did the rest. So Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today on the Missions Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe in iTunes or Google Play or whatever your favorite platform for listening is. You can check us out also on missionspodcast.com. If you have a question or a thought or an idea to contribute to a future episode, we'd love to hear it. You can email me, alex, at missionspodcast.com. And also, please remember to give us a five-star rating and an honest review and let us know how the podcast has impacted you. And until next time, Thank you for joining us today on the Missions Podcast.